Hello, everyone. Welcome back to OK Podcast. My name is Hayden. My name's Kamila. The inception of the internet has made finding J-Fashion resources extremely easy, connecting people to each other from thousands of miles away. Oh, but those resources are from the late 90s at the earliest, if they've been archived, and in a language that you know. Also, that resource may just disappear one day, if the website gets deleted. Okay, so resources are abundant but still limited, and many physical pieces of J-Fashion history have been lost to time. Today we are talking with Catherine, aka The Stitches, to talk about the history of J-Fashion and help us detangle this big mess of metaphorical threads. But before we get into that, we have some news, updates... Oh boy, if you've been on Twitter, you know exactly what we're going to talk about, because Mm -hmm. that was a whole bunch of mess. (laughs) And it's worth, like, mentioning. I think it's pretty salacious. We can all (laughs) get behind and be like, yeah, this was not good. And I mean, it it got Lolita fashion trending on Twitter. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. Whether you think it's positive or negative, it's a big deal. Right. If you don't know... Because you're not on Twitter, good for you, because it was a mess. Basically, someone on Twitter made the the same old, same old presumption about Lolita and the word Lolita and how it relates, or more so how it does not relate to- I have the tweet right here. Ooh. So the person- said, anyways, naming a fashion trend after a book about pedophilia and saying it's not creepy because it's a name in Spanish is like naming your dog the N-word and saying it's not racist because it's black in Spanish. What? (sighs) It is truly the hottest take we've ever seen in Lolita fashion. (laughs) Yeah, and they went, you know, they went off. They started saying... This is largely unknown, but there is also a movie about it. and Largely it's unknown. I know. I'm just like, huh? And it's once again normalizing pedophilia. I believe Lolly and Lollycon derive from Lolita or the other way around. What? Wrong. It was a true story from the view true of story. the man, I think, too. So maybe don't wear Lolita. And I'm just like, what? No. This is, are they saying it's coming from our fashion or maybe it's saying it's coming from the movie and then also posted some alternatives to Lolita. So alternatives to Lolita include pastel goth, kawaii goth, what is that? Pastel Victorian, what is that? And the pictures that they posted with that were none of the things that they said that they were. Right. (laughs) It's like no pastel goth photos at all. No kawaii goth. I don't know what that really looks like. And then pastel Victorian, maybe this this looks like some romantic fashion that they're putting in there. And then some random picture of knee-high socks with a pleated skirt. Mary Jane's. Yeah, and I'm just like, that, I don't think any of those are that. Or an alternative to Lolita. (laughs) They also said that the Nabokov book took place in the 1800s, which it does not. Which is hilarious that they were so wrong about the thing that they were complaining about that... Oh, it was just so much. And then they were saying that 
the reason why the name should be changed was because of um, CSA and people have been groomed because of Lolita fashion. I, at one point, replied to this person and said, Lolita fashion is an established subculture that has roots beginning in the 70s and multiple people, including CSA survivors, have already explained that the two words are just unfortunate homonyms. It seems like you need to do the work to distance yourself from Lolita fashion, not vice versa. And then I got blocked. (laughs) That's like one of my biggest pet peeves. The, The way of thinking is like, this thing bothers me, so you can't do it. Instead of, I don't like this thing, it bothers me, so I'm going to take the steps to not see it or to distance myself from it. Just because some person doesn't like a thing. Again, this person was completely wrong about all the points they were making. If their critiques were right, that'd be another thing. But their critiques are wrong. (laughs) So, this person didn't like a homonym. Didn't like a word that shared the sounds of another word. And and they just didn't, they didn't want anyone to use it. And it's like, homonyms exist. Staff can mean... People, like a group of people working for people. Staff can also mean a stick that you hold. Staff is also the name of an infection. (laughs) Like, just because you have a staff infection doesn't mean people are going to stop calling their employees staff. (laughs) Right. And then even also, because I'm just like, okay, so they might just be like, well, name it something different. But I saw some other dissenting comments saying that, oh, well, the way that it looks, it looks like they're dressing like children. And I'm just like, when have children dressed like this? Most of the children I see wear leggings and t-shirts because it's comfortable and they like to roll around and play Mm -hmm. in comfortable things. Yeah. Even in old timey times, they're not wearing something as elaborate. We're dressing like royalty type (laughs) outfits. Like we're trying to be queens or princes or (laughs) just royalty. And again, like, it also erases, like, the entire masculine side of Lolita fashion. It's a knee-jerk reaction, and then people, like, they have to prove themselves right. And it's like, you know, like, Aristo and OG is an offshoot of Lolita, and, like, they're all related. Like, you can't just deny this entire other part of the culture because you want to think you're right about something else. Right. I'm also thinking, like, because you perceive something as, I guess, hyper-feminine, it doesn't mean that it's childish. Exactly. There, There's definitely that correlation between femininity and being childlike. Like, it's, it's gross. It's awful! Yeah, or, like, being colorful and being childish. And then... Some of the people that were dissenting are the same type of people who say, like, just because you like something when you were a kid doesn't mean you can't like it now. Like, collect your stuffed animals. Collect the things that you collected as a kid. It's fine to collect dolls. And it's like, okay, but that's not childlike. Also, like, collecting stuffed animals, I would say, is just as childlike as dressing up in frills and candy, Like, for the Sweet Lolita specifically, like, how are those different? And you're, like, directly saying that they are childlike, and ugh, it's just a big mess. Awful, awfulness. But, out of all that negativity, 
came a lot of good because the response from the Lolita and general J fashion community in the U.S. was to repropagate and reclaim the hashtag Lolita fashion hashtag on Twitter. And it was amazing. So many great people, beautiful, beautiful folks, just making their themselves known and sharing their stories. And it was it was wonderful to see. That was super awesome. Also, just laughing at people's like comments and stuff like uh, it just spread to Facebook as people being like, what is going on? And I just enjoyed reading and laughing at those. <laughs> I was going through the hashtag and just like reporting every single like racist, fat phobic <laughs> Asshole. It's like, oh, it's like the N-word. I'm just like, really? It does everything that's like... Like, literally, no, it's not. Like, really, you gotta bring it there. There, uh, there Nothing is like the N-word except the N-word. Yeah, I'm just like, you're bringing race into something. Like, I'm just like, I want to see what you look like. What have you experienced? <laughs> Who are you? That seems like something... Someone who's actually had to deal with being called the n-word would not say <laughs> that it's anything like that wild folks wild times yeah yeah wild folks wild times just an interesting time for them to just bring this up too i'm just like why why did you i did that? not have lolita fashion hashtag resurgence twitter on my 2020 bingo list yeah exactly just like well you know 2020 has got to go out with a bang you know <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we just wanted to touch upon that just to say that that happened. <laughs> so I have a few Garu magazines. One of them is called Renzuki. And in a very high school Kamila move, I was just like, I just want to do like sketches from like magazines and get some inspiration for characters or just like opening up my visual library. It's been going like really well. I've been really enjoying sketching things from there and then like seeing how after the warm-ups of doing this, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm like capturing the silhouettes really quickly now. Even drawing some of the things of like, because in a lot of the Gatu magazine, there's a lot of tutorials on how to put on the makeup a certain way or do your hair. And so drawing those like process pictures, like rather than just drawing the final like pose has been really cool. I really like their poses are so good. Like it has, they have so much energy to their poses. Like it's different from looking at Lolita Bible where it's just like, oh, elegance. And, and theirs is more like sporty fun. We're jumping, we're kicking a leg out, we're winking and having the tongue out. It's like really fun hairstyles too so yeah so I really liked drawing a lot of those and like hopefully that'll just seep into my brain so that when I draw a character for something else it's like oh okay something comes to me from that inspiration just from like practicing from there so I recommend it if you have any older like fruits magazines or anything like that just doing some sketches from that inspiration and stuff. Are these magazines that you have physical or are they digital copies? I have physical. Where did you get a hold of them? 
Raina. <laughs> we love a friend who has a hookup. Yep, exactly. She let me have some. She's definitely like a private anthologist, I guess, of like these magazines and stuff. She's in the process right now of, she has an iPad that's specifically going to be holding all of our Blackout Gatry sub pictures and all of the pictures that she saved from Tumblr, which are like scans from magazines or- Company iPad. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because she's trying to make it like a digital photo book. Yeah, and so she's trying to organize everything, and I respect that in the Gaudu culture, there's just like, they know the names of all of these models, and they're just like, yeah, this person from this year to this year was like super cool, and they were in Nuts Magazine, and I have all of their picture from this one, and I'm just like, wow, you guys really no and then they'll be like yeah she has like a kid now and this thing and i'm just like gosh you already know what they're doing now and they really follow the individual icons and then if they see someone they don't know they're all like Who, what's that person's name who are they and that's like really important and with these magazines having new editions being revived like egg and, and Nuts has been revived. Like, it's kind of really important to see, like, who's the starting off models? Like, who has been chosen to be consistently in these shoots and stuff? So... If, if Egg and Nut did a collaboration, would it be Omelette? <laughs> <laughs> I love making bad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Or if you can't get your hands on, like, physical, I've done some drawings from Nuts Instagram. I think Raina let me have the Ranzuki and I think Egg magazines because those ones were really sporty and very much, like, I'm a Kaji sort of style, which I think I'm more likely to dress like. But Nuts is more... One and Ane Garu, very like more like mature style. You also have a bit of intel about a new J Fashion related podcast. Uh uh. Breaking news. There's a new J Fashion related podcast. This podcast was brought to my attention by just like a Facebook post, someone saying that, yeah, I'm finally going to publish this podcast idea that I've been working on for a while. And I was just like, oh, right. Awesome. And this one is by Jasmine Shea. She is active in the Lolita community. Judging by outfit photos, looks like she wears like kind of like sweet Lolita sort of stuff. So she's also creator of the page Black Girls Belong in Fantasy and Sci-Fi on Facebook. She's come out with her pilot episode of Lirabelle Goes to Tea. I believe this is going to be a audio drama featuring magical girl characters and their adventures in high school before they became magical girls. And you can have the opportunity to vote on what happens in the next episode. So there's some choose your own adventure elements to this. And I think these are characters that she's working on writing a novel for. The novel would be musical Witch Hunter Lirabelle. 
from the picture, like the Leo Bell character in the center is wearing sweet Lolita with a violin in her hand. She is a darker skinned character. I believe the character is black with big curly pigtails and a blue bow on the center of their head. And then the two other characters are wearing like gothic Lolita and classic Lolita. So yeah, so that's kind of like the whole scope of what I know. I know the first episode is out on Spotify, YouTube, and Podomatic. And you can vote on the next episode's happenings on Twitter. So that would be BGBFS. The pilot is only a little over 11 minutes, so it's a quick little listen. And I'm sure if you all listening would be like, oh my gosh, I need more, <laughs> they would be down to do more. Yeah, so wanted to just talk about it and just be like, hey, there's other stuff to listen to too. I'm always excited to find some more people interested in this medium yeah it is always nice to get more folks to to just like promote and share it's like look over here they're doing it too (laughs) right right and i think you'll find from our interview with Catherine that having a variety of sources is going to help preserve our fashion and what it means to us for generations to come. So yeah, so if you want to dive into a different media that not everyone's using, that's always good. And the last thing we're going to be talking about are our New Year's fashion resolutions, just because, you know, resolutions are an iffy thing for many people, but it's topical. (laughs) So let's do it. And you know what? With how this year has gone, I think it's fine to indulge ourselves and to at least say that we're going to do things. And if we don't do them, that's okay too. In therapy, my therapist calls them intentions. And I think it's good to have yearly intentions to start out. And if it doesn't work out, then that's fine. We'll make new intentions. So instead of resolutions, let's call them intentions. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, it's always like exciting for me. It just starts a little bit of like motivating, like, yeah. I feel this again in September when like the school year starts, even though I don't have school. I see that school section come up in Target and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I gotta buy all the things. Um, I gotta make excuses. It's the changing of the season. Yeah, yeah. And so I love that part of it. And I'm just like, yeah, I gotta go and do that. And it did get me started on a few things. And then like after Thanksgiving, it was just like, oh, oh my gosh, we got this Christmas stuff going on and... And so I lost a lot of like steam and um, motivation. But after Christmas, now we're going into the new year. It's like January is a whole month of like, we're about to do something else. We're about to go into something new. And so it starts again, like being able to refocus. I definitely do feel reinvigorated right now. I totally get that, the new motivation to just, like, keep going, kind of energy. Right, right. (laughs) And so, I mean, I guess you could say, oh, well, you can start that at any time. But I think 
I'm in listening to some productivity podcasts, they were talking about how there's different moments that can maybe if you're wanting to start something new, maybe put it at the beginning of a new month, um, the beginning of a new week or near your birthday or something. So they were just like these little things like these are like mind triggers for like, oh, yeah, all right, let's start something new. And and you'll feel like you have a little bit more like mental momentum. So I, I still feel like end of the year going into a new year is a good time to, you know, refocus and back into spring. I'm just like, yeah, then I'm feeling it kind of again. So I think it's plausible. <laughs> so I think my fashion intentions for this year is to, one, have more intention when it comes to buying pieces, buying things not so willy-nilly. I think before, as in like a few years ago, I would see something and I would immediately hold on to it because I didn't know when the next time it would be when I could find something like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I made a lot of purchases that didn't end up sticking. Just things that I bought impulsively, it just ended up falling through. So I want to have more intention with how I'm shopping. I also want to, I, I kind of struggle with this because I don't want to be super consumerist, but I want to buy more pieces that I had never been able to wear in the past. Like things that are very form-fitting to my chest now that I'm post-top surgery, bando tops, like lingerie that shows off my chest or shirts that show off my chest, transparent tops, mesh tops. Like the world is open to me and it's like, I know I don't need it, <laughs> but I've never had the chance to do this before. So, so, I, so in that way, you do need it. I think you're right. I think I do need it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I do need it. But yeah, like... Bando tops are something that I've always wanted to try. I want to make more coordinates that are like open chested. I don't want to say risque, but like show a little skin, you know, give a little, give a little peep. Just because I feel so much better about what I look like and what I can wear that it's like, I, I gotta do it. I gotta hold on to it all. <laughs> While also having intention, have intention with my purchases. <laughs> I mean, I think that's setting like a priority for your shopping being like, okay, like my main priority is showing off my new confidence and my chest area. I mean, it's designer. I, I spent thousands of dollars on this. How I have to show it off. Right, exactly. So <laughs> that if it's not doing that, then what is it doing? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. So I think that's, I think those two intentions can work together. I appreciate the, <laughs> the affirmation. <laughs> what are your, what's your new year intention going to be? I'm going to cut off half of my eyebrows. What? <laughs> I want to get some different eyebrow shapes going on in 2021. I, I make an exclamation as if I'm not trying to constantly hold back that same urge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm just like, yep, I got some precision trimmers. I'm just gonna cut off 
not like a hundred percent, but enough so that I can like change what the end tail is doing so that it'll be more, um, I'm just like, be more Gadu. I gotta have like the, the slant, the, the big angry eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get angry, you know? <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, I need to like have more of that in there and more like just more control over the eyebrow shape. So I think cutting it off will help. I'm going to get some NYX brand eyebrow pomade, probably in more like natural colors, and then splurge on some Kat Von D colorful eyebrow pomades. Because I looked on there, it was like $20 each. I'm just like, ooh, I need to just pick what color (laughs) I want to (laughs) try and buy one of these. And if I don't like it, I mean, my eyebrows grow back like crazy fast especially since I'm not like shaving them I'm like trimming them it's just gonna come back really fast so I'm just like uh yeah it'll be fine and I probably won't see anyone for 50 years when all you're doing is just like sitting at home taking pics there's no excuse honestly I should have done I should have shaved off my eyebrows earlier this year but I I was too scared And also, like, I have my eyebrow piercing, so it's like, I gotta make sure that that stays where it is. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. Maybe someday. And you can make, like, so many new looks with even just shaving the back half, like... If you wanted, you could do the little bean eyebrows or yeah, little hearts. Yeah, I've always wanted to do the beans <laughs> or the teardrops, kind of like. Mm-hmm. I, I like. I've always wanted to do that, so I'm just like, I'm gonna do it. So that's kind of one of my things. And then the other thing that I was going to, similar to your intention of like not buying so much, because see, what I end up doing is spending all of my extra money on clothes or accessories or something. And then it's like, oh, well, didn't you want to get like games or didn't want you get something for the house like I totally I totally forget other things that I could also buy as well and it's not to the point where oh we really needed to go grocery shopping but I spent my grocery money on this (laughs) it's just like other goals are not being worked towards as much financially just because I'm like all of my goals are clothes you forget about the home goods when you don't use them but you use your clothes every day yeah exactly so that's like more on the forefront of my mind so I was just like yeah for the first I was saying for the first six months but then one of my friends was just like that's too extreme you need to do like (laughs) that's so extreme so I'm just like okay for the first like three months I'm not gonna buy any apparel or accessories ambitious yeah and then like any extra money can be like used on saving more or other things that you are interested in investing in. So I'm just like, yeah, we're gonna do that. I deleted the Depop app because that was giving me troubles. Oh man, Depop <laughs> is a bane on my existence. Um, and then Poshmark too. Yeah. And then I'm almost like, I'm iffy on the Etsy app because I do like just looking on there and then categorizing what I'm liking into um, lists. And I also have to use it for ordering supplies for my weapon, prop accessory things that I decorate. But also now I'm seeing things like 
Um, I've been following some accessory designer sort of things, and I'm just like, oh, ooh, I, those are some really cute <laughs> necklaces and, and you know, like, creepy kitty, like, oh, yeah, yeah, always yeah. updating and stuff. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> How am I supposed to resist that? Creepy kitty cafe shoe, my two favorite accessory makers. Oh, I love Maria, Jessica. Love all your shit. Y'all are y'all are good people. Hello, you're <laughs> wonderful. Hi. <laughs> thank you for thank you for all the work you do. I love all your things. I also like Dolly Cake Shop. She's like a new person on my radar, but is apparently recommended for for I've seen some other people who wear Decora mention their shop and I was just like, "Oh, let me like look into that." And I'm just like, "Oh my gosh." I need all these things. So I bought like one set from them um, and it's like bracelets, which I, I noticed that I have a hole in my bracelet category of accessories. And I really like Dolly Cake Shop's bracelet a lot. I've slowly been collecting more bracelets. Now my biggest issue is that all of my rings are broken. Like all of the cabochons pop off of the ring. Yeah, it's awful. Pop off of the ring. Yeah, and hot glue doesn't help. They, it, it just keeps popping off. I need like super glue, uh, but also like it'll keep popping off, and I'm just like, <laughs> I need to like weld it on. Right. Yeah, that's probably what the factories do. Like, well, even when you get them at like. Claire's they'd be popping off too and I'm just like okay (laughs) it's like might as well have done this myself so I've been liking getting some bracelets but I'm also like nope need to not follow this person so that they can show me more bracelets to want and Facebook ads have not been helping either They've been getting better at like, (laughs) oh, this person likes this sort of stuff. Let's show them new expensive boutique brands to buy from. And I'm just like, no, please don't. I I liked it better when you showed me things that didn't match (laughs) uh, my interests. (laughs) I liked it when you showed me like the weird dog grooming shit you had. Like, um, go back to showing me things for babies because I got something for my godson, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so that's my other goal, but I can, like, leave more time for, like, working on makeup techniques with my eyebrows. And then the last thing is I'm really trying to get Hard Decor Comic monthly on webtoons oh oh see when when you wrote down hd a webtoon comic i thought it was like high definition comic and (laughs) i was like are you already not drawing high definition like what's your dpi exactly (laughs) i'm gonna move my drawings from 72 dpi to 300 (laughs) finally like i I got this tip from somewhere i don't know how i didn't know um (laughs) oh man okay i'm glad you cleared that up because i oh yes boy oh big dumb here (laughs) no it's okay yeah whenever i mention hd to monique they're like uh, do you mean Harajuku Day? And I was like, no, not Harajuku Day. <laughs> Too many HDs. <laughs> Too many HDs here. Um, so what's the process of making it into a webtoon? So have you been on, do you read comics on webtoon or? No. Okay. I know of it. I 
I've never tried because I was scared. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> You'd probably like a lot of the things on there. They're very LGBTQ friendly and stuff. That's why I'm scared. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of like drama, romance stuff on there. Oh, I thought I thought you were implying drama uh, uh, amongst artists on there, and I was like, Kamila, you know I love the drama. I mean, I guess they're. <laughs> I guess there could be, but people really like Laura Olympus. So Simon is even reading Laura Olympus. Simon is all over the webtoon comics. He's just like, oh yeah, I'm reading this one. I'm reading that one. It's it's crazy how opposite like our tastes are. I'm just like, oh, you like all like the lovey dovey with a little bit of magic or adventure, whereas I'm just all like. I need like a thriller, like, yeah. you know, existential and makes me think about my life. <laughs> and then like, if there's a love thing in there, that's fine. But yeah, I need that other thing to be more present. I need to be solving some sort of like mystery or something, which they do have some of that on there, but it doesn't tend to be the most popular. But Webtoons... On there, the formatting is a lot different than making a regular comic book. So it's not like pages. They do it more based on panels. And so everything's stacked vertically um, with, a, with a little bit of like space between it. And the word bubbles are a lot like larger and kind of placed a little bit before the next panel begins. And this is also that it makes reading on your phone very easy. And most likely... I won't be changing how my comic was the first time around because I'm just like, ah, uh, this seems like a lot of work to go back and then try to change it to the webtoon format, though you can do it. But I would just be starting the new chapters in this other format of the webtoon. But before the launch of the webtoon, I want to launch a Patreon to go hand in hand with it. And that will also supply some like extra content. And I don't want to launch the Patreon or the Webtoon without making a two month buffer of new content. Then it'll be like, okay, the first month, I'll just get used to what the format is and see if it's faster or slower or something for me to do, how many panels that I want to try and fit in each episode, they call it. The next month's content buffer, I'm basically going to be like, okay, and now we're going to make it like we're timing you hardcore of how much can you do comfortably in a month. I mean, I can decide my own thing. I don't have to do with what all the popular, you know, authors are doing because that's their one main thing that they're doing. Yeah, they don't have a fashion brand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm just like, I don't really like have to do it like that. Yeah, I just want to know what, what basically my panel goal is, which sounds a little bit easier than having to do a certain amount of pages. Now it's like breaking down in the panels and it's just like, hey, not that much happened, but there were a lot of panels going on and that means I'm done. And <laughs> yeah, and I think I understand that a little bit more because with the page, you're trying to like fit certain things into like, oh, the shape of the page and stuff. Whereas like, if it's just panels and you're scrolling down, it's like- You don't have to think about an entire page's format. Yes, exactly. So I'm like, this is like 
this could work out better. It could be easier for me to put this in if I feel like I need to add another panel while I'm doing it to clarify something. That's easy to do. It's not going to mess up another page's thing. So I'm working all of that out. Hopefully in the top half of the year, I will have launched both of those things. But yeah, we will see. I don't want to put an exact date on it because, you know, who knows what's going to be going down, you know. Uh, no, I, I won't, I won't uh, put any predictions out there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just hope for the best. Yeah, we'll just hope for the best, yeah. So yeah, and who knows how easy it'll be for me to figure out the webtoon format. I'll be like, oh, I thought it was like this. And then when I put it on the page, everything's the size of a pixel. And that's not working. <laughs> so, so yeah, but I'm really excited about that. And that means more J-fashion drawing for me to do and it is another piece of j fashion history oh yeah <laughs> and you know that is such a cool thing to hold on to and it perfectly segues into our interview with Catherine, aka the stitches if anyone out there has any new year's fashion intentions please let us know what they are we'd love to hear because we might steal them <laughs> <laughs> or if you have any tips on how we can do our intentions because Oh boy, uh, we might fall off the rocker real quick. Right, um, right. <laughs> please share with us. We'd love to hear what all of y'all out there are trying to do this year. Let's get that collective energy up. Let's keep each other accountable. And it'd be cool to listen, just to talk about it on the podcast too. Yeah, definitely. Next month we can share and then we can uh, help hype you up, get you back on that horse if you've fallen off, because you know what? It, you can always start again. You can always start again. So give us your intentions for this year. We would love to hear. And with that, let's head on into our mid-roll for this month. Hey y'all, it's Hayden. It's Kamila. We've talked a bit about how OK Podcast is a labor of love for us. Yes. Neither of us get paid to create this content and we make it because it's important and we love to do it. Yeah, doing this podcast does take a lot of time and a bit of money though. Because of that, we would like to tell you about our Patreon. If you become a monthly Patreon at any level, you'll get to contribute questions to our monthly guests. And if you donate at the $3 a month level, you'll gain access to our bonus patron content, which has special interviews with our guests. Like what it's like to be in a garusa, switching styles, and tips on modeling in Japan. There's absolutely no obligation to become a patron whatsoever, but we would greatly appreciate it. So thank you so much, and now back to the show. Woo! And welcome back. Today we are chatting with Catherine, aka The Stitches. Catherine is an alternative fashion YouTuber who specializes in cute, hyper-feminine styles. Topics she discusses include going fast fashion-free, the history and social impact of clothing, and getting the most out of your wardrobe. Being The Stitches, there are also, of course, lots of sewing vlogs. Hi Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys today? Sleepy. It's been an early morning. I had to wake up at like 3 a.m., which is rough. Mm. Oof. But Oof. we're working through it. I got a good nap in, so, okay. you know, we're we're running. How are you doing, Kamila? 
I'm doing all right. I'm just a sleepy bean because I've been staying up late and sleeping in and now I'm trying to stop (laughs) (laughs) doing that. It like gets to a point where it's like, no, it's out of hand. Now we gotta like peel it back. (laughs) I love it when the sleep deprivation gets so bad that you just end up like recycling into a normal sleep cycle where it's like oh man but then the sleep cycle is during the wrong time of day (laughs) (laughs) it's like you know i feel great but uh i'm ready like to get stuff done at like 6 p.m so i mean (laughs) i guess we're rolling with it but none of the stores are (laughs) (laughs) exactly but yeah i started getting some work done today so i'm glad about that. I took kind of like the week of Christmas off as far as like doing any hard decor work or anything. So we got to take advantage of that end of the year, beginning of the year um, motivation before it quickly runs out during mid-January. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So getting right into our questions, Catherine, how did you first get into J fashion? What was the thing that pulled you in that you saw and was like, oh, this is a thing? I really enjoy this. I'm going to look more into it. Uh, well, the first J fashion that I ever discovered was Lolita fashion. And I discovered that through a friend in like literally my first semester at high school. Uh, one of my friends in a drama class that I was in used to carry around the Gothic and Lolita Bibles. And so I kind of just discovered Lolita fashion and Visual K and sort of like the more J fashion influenced version of goth. And I was already dressing kind of goth at the time or like my little baby bat mall goth version of goth. <laughs> Cause I mean, I was, I was, you know, literal child at the time. I didn't really, and like the internet was definitely a thing then. I mean, it was 2008. So like, obviously we had the internet, but it wasn't nearly what it is now. So like there weren't as many resources available at the time. From that friendship, learning about Lolita and like Visual K and all of that, I kind of got more interested in like the live journal community and I joined like EGL and I didn't really post on EGL much, but I definitely read it and I um, traumatized from that whole experience. Oh no. (laughs) We talk about we talk about how catty the Lolita community is now, and, like, there certainly is still a lot of, like, just general negativity there, but, like, it's nothing like what it was on EGL. Like, <laughs> we, were, we were cutthroat to each other. We had we had no understanding of how to talk to each other online at the time yet. But it was through Lolita that I discovered other J fashions, like Fairy K, followed a lot of blogs at the time, specifically, like, Lolita Charm, which is now Parfait Doll, was one that I really liked at the time. F Yeah Lolita was one that I really liked at the time. And it was really through their posting that I discovered more of the like J fashion community. And then eventually I got more into pastel looks. I love to see that development from folks who started very like gothic, very emo scene in their younger years and then just doing a 180 as they're older. Yeah, I feel like most Lolitas were into like some sort of scene or emo or goth. I know. Maybe that was like the most like 
easily accessed alternative style because I think that's I'd say probably... that's definitely part of it because like when I think of alternative fashion the first thing I think of is punk and then I think of goth and then I think of girlier stuff so like I think we just kind of gravitated towards those because it was what we knew about and it was what you saw on TV everyone has a hot topic Right? Everyone has a hot topic at their mall. Like, I live in a tiny little town. It's actually had a big population boom recently, but like, when I was a kid, it was not a big town, and we had a hot topic here. And also, I feel like if there's going to be an alternative fashion character on TV, in media, on just like a generalized TV show that's meant to be for like general audiences, if you're going to include alternative fashion in that, it's usually a goth. Like the number of times I got compared to Abby from NCIS when I was in high school, <laughs> despite oh. the fact that I look nothing like her. <laughs> like I wore pigtails, but I didn't even have black hair. I was just still blonde I, back yeah. then. I'm, a, I'm having flashbacks to the high school dramas, like Degrassi mm-hmm. girl looks over goes, who's that? Oh, him? That's John. <laughs> Yeah, he's like that all the time. He's so edgy. <laughs> or Daria. So oh yeah, Daria edgy. is definitely oh a God, huge Daria. influence. Mm-hmm. I felt Jane Lane in my soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny watching, I rewatched Daria recently and like the fashion club, I almost felt like I kind of relate to you guys. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't like how mean you are, but I kind of relate. I think it's funny that the fashion club really wasn't even about fashion most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, did anybody ever notice that? Like, it was mostly them just being very insecure. Oh, yeah. And, like, having a group where they could talk about their insecurities. But then, like, there were just fashion magazines around, and they'd be like, oh, what kind of bikinis are you into this season? But then, like... Like, I don't really remember them going to, like, fashion shows or anything like that, or even really modeling clothing that often. Well, they, yeah, they were, like, I guess in high school. They were definitely mall rats. Yeah, they were more, yeah, they were more like the mall rats. Yeah, they just kind of went to the mall, and that was right. their version and I, of fashion. I loved, oh, Daria's sister is definitely me right now, <laughs> where it's, like, <laughs> uh, everyone's, like, getting real deep, and I'm just like, so yeah, can we talk more about clothes? <laughs> right. Honestly, Quinn was my favorite character from that show, just because I felt like, especially at the end of the show in like season five, she got so much interesting character development. And like, secretly the whole time, like she was always as smart as Daria. She just had different priorities. And yeah. you can kind of see that come through in some of the episodes. Like she was genuinely just kind of dumbing herself down because that's how she felt comfortable. Right. But they genuinely showed that in the show a few times. Like, she was, like, social climber. So it's just like, okay, what's the personality I have to have in order to get by in this situation? Okay, I'm choosing that. Yeah, she kind of, like, took after the mom a lot. Yeah, yeah, she did. And then I also saw, like, the future 
well, when they imagined the future and Quinn was, you know, had She's like, always so much more toned down yeah, and like down she, to earth in the future. Right. So it's just like, oh, she kind of like realized how like problematic some of her actions were in the past. And I was just like, oh, that's nice to know. You know, people do change and grow. I love when uh, shows are like, uh, we're not going to do misogyny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. that, that stuff. Oh, I love that good non-misogyny girl loves to be pretty she's still good or if they're gonna do misogyny it's like they turn it on their head and be like oh actually misogyny is stupid and this (laughs) character isn't gonna be anything like what you think they're gonna be like kind of like that whole like legally blonde right type characters or there was an episode where Daria, who's like definitely against like, oh, we have to be pretty for everyone else. But then she realizes that she actually likes herself, um, likes the way that she looks without the glasses and with the contacts. I remember that episode. She has like this dream where she is like Quinn and she's slipping into yeah. Quinn's position in the fashion club. <laughs> I remember that. Fashion podcast? No, we love to review TV shows. Right. <laughs> well, TV shows that talk about Her fashion. aunt in that episode was the one that actually talked her down from it because she's like, do you look at yourself in the mirror before you go outside when you put your glasses on? And she's like, yeah. And then it's like, well, you're already vain. <laughs> so you might as well <laughs> yeah. be whatever kind of vain you want to be. Right. We all have it in some way, shape or form. So just embrace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I-, I think it's human nature just to, to be a little bit vain. Just a little bit. We all want to feel good with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, you can obviously take it too far and become, like, an egotist, but... I mean, it's it's natural to want to present yourself a certain way. Right. Everything in balance. Yeah. So how would you describe your current J fashion style, like considering all your influences? Because now I see your little picture on here and it looks very pink. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I wouldn't define my style. I wouldn't define it as J fashion specifically, J fashion is like a major inspiration to me, obviously, because I really love a lot of different J fashion styles. And I think in the world right now, I feel like Harajuku and J fashion and all of that has the most interesting things to say with fashion, which is why I like it so much. But in general, like I'm also inspired by Western alternative fashion. I'm also inspired by vintage fashion. I'm inspired by like a lot of different things. So like J fashion is just one component of my style. and. I try not to force myself to fit into any particular style. Like, I don't consider myself a Lolita blogger. I don't consider myself a just kawaii blogger. I don't consider myself, like, to fit into those styles because I found that when I was trying to be like, oh, I'm going to make a Lolita outfit. I'm going to make a Fairy K outfit. It just didn't turn out the way I had it in my head. But then when I just took all those labels off of myself and was like, okay, I'm just gonna pair this shirt with this skirt and see how it looks. That just kind of freed me up a little bit. The way that I would describe my style now is just hyper feminine and pastel. I I wouldn't really use any other main descriptors on my style right now. I use like kawaii and other J fashion styles as tags on photos and I'll use it in like video titles. 
But that's more of like an SEO thing. Yeah. (laughs) Just to tag who might be interested in watching it. Yeah, because I could tag things hyper feminine, but then who's going to watch it? Who's going to find it? I definitely see the Kawaii community as like my target audience, but I don't know if I necessarily see myself as being like a Kawaii influencer TM. (laughs) Yeah. I can you know, understand that's that. super interesting because I've been finding that sentiment more and more common, especially with people who we are interviewing recently. They either have their style very much figured out, like they know exactly what category they fall into and they're very comfortable in that category. Um, and then on the flip side, there are also those who are doing everything and anything. And I find both of those very uplifting and supporting in different ways and at different times. Because there are some days where I personally am like, man, I really want to do a fairy K look, but I I don't know. I just, I really want to do, I want to wear this one thing, but I want to make it fairy K. And then I'm like, forget labels. I'm just going to wear what I want. And then there are other days where I want to do something that is like very by the books, one specific J fashion style. And then those guidelines really help me to hone in and define what outfit or silhouette or style I'm going for that day. So I just find it interesting that that's popping up more and more often. I feel like labels and defined styles are really helpful, especially if you are still finding your personal style. Like, especially right now as a community, I think a lot of us are feeling like we've outgrown some of those labels and it can be kind of restricting. Like Lolita fashion, I feel like is very, very defined in what it is. And you can only experiment with it so far until it's not Lolita anymore. So if you're like, I wear Lolita fashion, that's who I am. It's almost like really limiting in a way in what kind of outfits you can put together because at the end of the day it's always going to be some sort of puff sleeve blouse with some sort of poofy skirt and you can't really be like oh I want to wear pants today well that's suddenly a different style that's all of a sudden that's boy style and not maybe Lolita and I think like a lot of us were just feeling a little bit suffocated by those labels and so now we're trying to just like do our own thing right but it is it is interesting that like culturally as a community, we just decided to do that all together all at once. Yeah, it's been happening very frequently uh, in like the past five years I've been seeing and I'm living for it. It really does. Like I love the experimentation and I love to see how things are getting mixed up. Yeah. And like the labels were useful there for a bit. Like I just want to be like, I'm not anti-label or anything, but like I... I feel like, you know, they were useful, but they're only useful to a certain extent. I feel that way with, like, sexuality labels a lot, too. Mm -hmm. Like, if I wanted to, I could, like, slap three different flags on myself. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's like, does it really matter? Right. It's like once the labels become very much accepted, at least as far as, like, my theory on sexuality goes, then we won't need the labels anymore. Because it won't matter. (laughs) The labels are helpful if you, like, don't know what to call yourself, don't know what to call your fashion, don't know what you're into yet. But when you do know yourself pretty well, it's like, oh, I don't really need to force myself to shove myself into this other box with this other name on it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you find that the label is perfectly fine. You're just like, yeah, I mean... I just mostly wear Sweet Lolita or something, and that's that's just my thing. And I figured out that I fit neatly, naturally within it without having without feeling the suffocation. I think some people end up feeling the suffocation by it, and then some people 
don't. Like people who feel like I wear dark colors. I wear black and that is my thing. And if you try to in- introduce color to me, I feel very uncomfortable about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, there are people that are like, I'm sweet Lolita for life. That's who I am. That's how I feel most comfortable. And that's totally fine. And this, like, same on the mm-hmm. flip side, there are people that have been punk for decades and they have no desire to stop being punk or identifying as punk. And that's totally cool too. Like if, if the label is helpful to you, absolutely like use it brandish yourself with it tattoo it on your body i don't care (laughs) like like if it if it helps you then absolutely but if it's not helpful to you then you don't really need to feel the need to force yourself to fit a label yeah definitely the the rules can be helpful and hurtful most definitely So, Catherine, you recently released two videos, one documenting the history of kawaii Harajuku fashion and the other vintage-inspired J fashions. What made you want to create these two videos? Um, And uh, I believe this was slash is a sub-series on your channel. I wasn't sure, like, if you were going to continue it or not. I just wanted to leave that open for you. Yeah, it is kind of a sub-series. It's not something that is like front and center, like this is what I focus on when I'm making videos. It's kind of like a back burner thing where like in the background, I'm doing research on different styles. And then when I feel like I have a good video put together, then I'll make one. And honestly, I mostly just wanted an excuse to spend all that time doing research because <laughs> I'm, I'm just very interested in it myself. I really love fashion history just in general. I love that fashion is tied to our social history so directly because like when you think about it in the morning, what's one of the first things you do? You get dressed. You think, what am I doing today? What am I going to be doing today? And then you get dressed accordingly. And so clothing has just this very intimate connection with us throughout our history. And like the history of fashion is human history. So I think it's really interesting, especially, especially the alternative fashions, because that's like a direct tie to a countercultural movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like goth, goth was invented because of the consumerism of the 80s. Punk was invented because of similarly, the hyper-Christian nuclear family values of like the 60s and 70s is what brought us punk. I, I'm just interested in how all of these different fashions interact with our culture and what they have to say about the culture that they exist within. It reminds me of how like people try to separate politics and fashion and especially like alternative fashions and it's just like it's it's actually a, yeah you just you just physically can't you can't <laughs> and it's like a reaction to something the reason that we choose to wear certain clothes isn't just like oh utilitarian we should just all wear potato sacks and <laughs> <laughs> yeah fashion is incredibly reactionary it is yeah. like 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 i said you, you think what am i going to do today what what do i need to get done today and you get dressed accordingly like if you're going to go mm-hmm. walk around all day then you're going to wear some sort of flat shoe that you're comfortable in whereas if you're going to go to a party then you wear something completely different just the social nature the social implications the i love how everything overlaps i love pulling at the strings and entangling this weird mess of fashion and society <laughs> every single aspect of fashion has one of those like deep wormholes associated with it yeah when i was watching your videos 
I was feeling this feeling that I guess happens when I watch true crime things where there's like, oh, there's a hole in the story, though. Like, how did this <laughs> thing happen? And feeling a little bit, oh, there's a conspiracy to like, how did this style start? But then there wasn't any documentation. Hmm. And <laughs> like, are these styles connected? Because I feel like they look kind of similar, <laughs> but maybe they just happened in two separate times. Right. I thought those sorts of finds and explanations were really interesting which brings me to our next question like how did you go about researching for these videos and determining what's the most accurate information when there's this so much possibly unreliable narrators (laughs) and that's one of the things like i do recommend people take those videos with a grain of salt because i could be going off of bad information we don't really have a way of knowing that here especially me being like an american Mm. researching japanese fashion like there's a little barrier there basically what i do is i find all of the initial sources that i can you know i open up google type in the fashion name find every single thing that I can, and then compile basic information from that. And then from those sources, I will look at where they got their information. For instance, there's the fandom Wikipedia that has the different alternative fashion Wikipedias on it. It has all of the sources for each article listed in the bottom of the page. So I just go through those sources. And then sometimes those sources will link me back to other things. Sometimes I'll get linked back to like actual designer interviews and things like that. Oh yeah, that'd be really good. Uh, One of the things that I learned in college is that there are different levels of resources. So most of what we're getting when you, when you type in Google and you find some random wiki, that's like a tertiary source. That's like several layers separated from the original source material that it came from. And then like my videos would be considered like a secondary source because I took as much as I could from primary sources and compiled it. Uh, Primary sources are unfortunately much harder to find because it's it's like the main source. It's like what the designer had to say. It's the street snap photo. It's the actual magazine that had the original information in it. Especially when you're talking about alternative fashion and these sort of like cultural subgroups, it's a lot harder to find those primary sources. So most everything is going to be a secondary or tertiary source. I try as hard as I can to get back to the original source as I can. For instance, in the vintage-inspired J-fashion, where I talk about Morike and um, Cult Party K and, and like Dolly K and all that stuff, I mainly relied on like shop reviews from people that actually went to the stores and talked about mm. them, as well as um, designer interviews. There actually was a really good interview with the people that created Grimoire that I got a lot of information from because he like talked about like the business model. He talked about like how often he went to uh, other countries to find clothing. Like it was just a really good source of information about how that whole brand came to be. And then a lot of those brands also had their own website, obviously. A lot of those websites have blogs associated with them. And so a lot of my information also comes from blogs. It's like they'll talk about events that are happening in the shop, when shops open, when shops change different staff around. Like I was able to track down several staff, several people that worked at the cult party shop. But unfortunately, unfortunately, nobody actually like, nobody said in a blog, oh, the shop is owned by so-and-so. It was a bit harder to get information on that specific store because 
The owner of the store actually described themselves in uh, my poorly Google translated version of their blog post, an analog type person, which to me means like, oh, I just, I'm not very good with technology. And unfortunately that means that there just isn't as much information available about that particular shop because they didn't really set up as many websites as other brands did. Right, or like documented in a way where somebody could have easier access to the information. Yeah. You're truly doing God's real work going on to the second page of Google, like the depths where no one ventures. I was on like the third or fourth page of Google on some of those. (laughs) And it's very interesting. I never thought of reviews of shops to be that primary source. It just never really came up in my head. It was actually... um, I discovered that the Cult Party slash Virgin Mary shop was across the street from a fashion school, Mm -hmm. like a design school. Just because I was scrolling through, somebody had made like, um, it wasn't a review. It was like when you maybe are like a tourist and you're looking up different places to shop, there will be like tourist destination type websites. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, articles, yeah. Yeah, it was just an article about the shop on, I think it was Style Arena? And it had just a Google map thing in the corner. And I was like, wait, is that a high school right across the street from the shop? Like, <laughs> that's interesting. That That's really interesting. And then I opened up the Google map and looked around and I was like, oh, there's a lot of schools in this area. Well, that's why they have so many, that's why they have such a big young audience because there's a lot of young people in that neighborhood. Just little things like that will help tremendously in like figuring out just how a brand came to be, how a brand interacts with the people around it and all of that. And how like reaction to like societal factors, like external factors on what fashion style develops. Yeah. I thought that video was really awesome just because I don't know, when I started getting into J fashion, I saw that there was like, I think I had like one or two friends that were saying, we're trying to do Mori. Or one friend that would be like, oh, I'm trying to do Colt Party K. And I could never understand what they were. I'm just like, I see that it has a distinct look, but what is this? about like I didn't know what the story was behind what it was trying to say or what were the types of elements connecting it together so I I thought your video was like very useful to me oh thank you I I mean I wanted to know that stuff too which is why I made those videos because I was like oh well when I was on tumblr back in like 2010 to 2014 like everybody was just like oh cult party k and dolly k are just two different versions of the same fashion. And then I actually did the research and found out that like, Hmm. oh no, that's not true at all. (laughs) They just came out of the same area. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I I had never heard that comparison before. Yeah, that was like a very common misconception in like 2012, I feel like. I haven't even heard of Dolly K in the way that you described it. I heard people trying to refer to Lolita-ish things as Dolly. Oh yeah, Dolly Lolita was like a thing. People were really inspired by Dolly K and incorporated into Lolita. And I Mm. think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the creator of the F Yeah Lolita blog was really into Dolly K and talked about it a lot on Tumblr. Okay. I think that's where that came from. Yeah. 
So you briefly mentioned some of the difficulties with researching these topics, like not having a proper translation. Thank you, Google Translate. (laughs) Thank you, you terrible, broken structure of... (laughs) just string random (laughs) shit together yes please thank you (laughs) yes thanks and then you mentioned um the owner of cult party slash virgin mary being an analog person which does not help with archiving what was uh what were some of the other hurdles that you experienced with trying to research this information and what workarounds did you manage to find if any Well, I mean, obviously the main hurdle is that I don't know Japanese. (laughs) As much as I would love to just uh, stick Japanese, like the whole language in my brain and just know it. Personally, I have a lot of difficulty learning languages. It's just the one thing that I've never been good at at all. Like, I was an honor student, but I got C's in language classes because that's how bad I am at just memorizing things like that. So um, as much as I would love to just learn Japanese and know it and like, just stick it in my brain. Unfortunately, that's a bit of a huge hurdle in researching J fashion brands, because obviously all of the source material, all of the primary resources are going to be in that other language. Another huge hurdle is just broken links. Articles no longer existing or websites no longer existing. The uh, the Mixi community isn't even accessible through Wayback Machine because where the whole fashion came from essentially was the Mixi Mori Girl community. And I just can't access that because the community was deleted in like 2009, 2010, I wanna say. Even with the internet archive, which is sometimes called the Wayback Machine, it's not accessible because Mixi at the time was an invite only social media platform. So there's no way for me to go back and make like a profile for me to access that. So I mentioned the Internet Archive. That is a good workaround for websites that don't exist anymore. If you can just find the URL, you can pop that onto Internet Archive. And if anybody else liked that website or thought that that website was really cool, they were able to archive it at the time. And the Internet Archive has been around since I want to say the early 2000s. So there are a lot of really old websites on there. I think there might even be 90s websites on there, but I'm honestly not sure when it came into being. And so like, that's how I got images of the old Grimoire webshop, how I was able to get access to old blogs, even though a lot of those websites don't exist anymore. For instance, the, the Virgin Mary shop doesn't exist anymore online. So I had to access that through Wayback Machine, but that is an invaluable tool. I think a lot of people should learn how to use that and archive sites that exist right now because like that is tremendously helpful other than that yeah just trying to like find your way through those secondary and tertiary sources trying to get to that primary source especially not knowing japanese because like how do you know what to search if you're searching and stuff in a completely different language like even if you use the japanese version of google which i believe is just google.jp like learning that a lot of the names that we have for styles like natural k doesn't refer to what westerners call natural k in japan so if you look up natural k even if you know like the hiragana or kanji for that you're still not gonna find what you're looking for googling that term 
So for me, uh, a good resource for me was blogs run by people that are actually bilingual. <laughs> blogs run by people that actually speak Japanese and are able to translate that source material and put it up on their website. So like, if you know Japanese and you're interested in J-Fashion, you should probably start running a blog because other people would be very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Shum is a really good source like that since yeah. since she's bilingual. Let's just make a J-Fashion community uh, translator pot and we'll all pitch in whenever we can and we will hire <laughs> someone to do all of the work and we'll yes. be good. <laughs> Like the calm yes. is kind of like that. Oh, also the calm, you know, physical book is on pre-order. Ooh. So oh, yes. check that out. I, I did get my pre-order in of that. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so through all of this, did you notice any commonalities between fashions that have stood the test of time? And feel free to define your own version of stood the test of time, because I know there are dead fashions, basically not really evolving fashions that are still has a still vibrant community, like you were saying Lolita, but they're like still around. What do you think about brands that have lasted and styles that have lasted versus styles that have fizzled out over time? That's actually a really interesting question because I feel like even fashions that we do consider dead, like personally, I consider Lolita to be a dead fashion, despite the fact that there are brands still available just because it's not growing or evolving. I mean, it's growing in numbers to a certain extent, depending on like, it's definitely growing in the West. I wouldn't say it's really growing as much in Japan. Yeah, it's staying steady, I guess. That's just me as an outsider making that statement. So again, massive grain of salt with that. But um, I don't really think fashions truly die in the sense that people stop wearing them and stop thinking about them but it's definitely it helps uh if you have like a greater community associated with your fashion that tends to be what really makes or breaks them is that if they have that community of people behind them that are willing to keep it alive it helps to have a really pointed reason to dress the way that you're dressing so like Lolitas dress the way that they dress because they were originally protesting against the way that women's bodies are sexualized by the male gaze, especially in Japan. The same with like punk and goth had reasons to be there. They, they had a reason to start dressing that way initially and then people liked it and just kept at it. It also helps if, the, if it's like easy to achieve for the average person. I feel like punk and goth are never going to die just because they're so easy. Yeah, DIY yeah. culture. Yeah, you can have like really elegant punk looks that are really difficult to achieve, but the vast majority of punk looks don't look like that. It's just some stuff that you got at the thrift store painted and then sewed onto a jacket usually. It's, it's really easy to do DIY versions of punk. It's really easy to do DIY versions of goth, which is why... I feel like those fashions have stuck around so long, even though it's been decades since they hit the scene. It also really helps to not have terrible people in your community. <laughs> you know, there there is a reason we don't talk about the club kids anymore. There, There's reason people um. kind of have scrubbed that out of their brains because, you know, the person that basically started it killed somebody so like we don't we don't talk about that anymore because a lot of it was started by really terrible people and they also just had a lot of 
there were a lot of drugs in that particular community and that did not help either. So like having having a healthy community helps a lot. Like having a fashion style that isn't centered around low key destroying your body. Right. Let's all go to therapy, kiddos. Yeah. Yeah, I think punk had a lot of that too. Mm -hmm. Like the straight edge community that was born out of punk. There's a reason that punk has the straight edge community. It's because when it first started, it was it was going so far against the like hyper Christian nuclear family of like the 50s and 60s that they did kind of take it a little too far sometimes and it did get problematic sometimes and so yeah definitely there was still misogyny in it there was still a lot of violence yeah <laughs> but as a result the community got together and was like hey um that's really bad. Maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah. And now punk is still alive. It survived that because straight edgers got together mm-hmm. and was like, hey, we need to give this like a better public image. And then like finally, most importantly, I feel like if you want your fashion to live throughout the decades and survive, you have to have really good resources available for other people, for outsiders to find. It helps if there are even print publications as well, or like documentaries, any book or magazine or anything like that that can have a physical copy that gets stuck in your library that you can go and visit for 30 years until they decide to get rid of it, or a documentary that everybody is able to be like, oh, this is what this means, this is who started it, and like have that information out there for people to find. I think that's just very important for any anything that wants to last longer than like five years. Also thought about how um, if you could get your fashion style into any sort of entertainment media, like comics. Yeah, like again, the early 2000s, there were so many just random like goth-esque characters. Right. In all kinds of media you wouldn't expect them to be in. Right, and it doesn't mean that like everything's gonna be goth now. It's like s- super mainstream, but when pe- when you dress that way, then it's like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, like if I wouldn't have grown up with the Adams Family, <laughs> right. I don't know how weird I actually would have turned out. Right, so I'm just like, that's really helpful. Or even with some of the J fashion styles too, they have like, with Gaudu, there was gals, super gals, as like the anime and the manga. And I think there's some other anime too. Nana was like kind of good for like goth punky. Visual K. Lolita visual K. <laughs> sort of interested people. I, I very much agree to that point of having a reason behind a fashion. I think that is one of the reasons why Gyaru is having such a big resurgence right now because like just the very succinct it wow be sexy yeah <laughs> and having the very succinct few points uh-huh it's it's like able to be feminine and even at times even able to be sexy but on your own terms yeah very very much reclaiming uh personal sexiness and not letting people objectify you while still being sexy and like being a person behind the sexiness that you exude. And I love that. It's wonderful. Yeah. Which is not something that women in any part of the world really get to experience in outside of the realm of certain alternative fashions, unfortunately. 
Yeah, that's that's why oh, I I love Gyaru's so much because it's just like, yes, you're fucking it up. And like, just you're wrecking it. And it's wonderful. Please destroy what society has created. I will help you burn it down. <laughs> and there's lots of different ways to wear it. I feel like the styles that have the most sub styles almost of just like, oh, okay, but you could do these colors or you could do these colors. You could do this silhouette or you could do that thing. You can be sweet. You can be spunky. You can be hardcore, whatever you want. You could be animal print. You could be, you know, (laughs) so if, if you're able to mix around a lot of things, a lot more people can find their kind of place within it. Circling back to goth, they have a lot of similar things going on in that community. Like, I remember when I was in like middle high school and like getting into the goth subculture kind of air quotes. And um, there was this one website where it had like all the different types of goth. And there were easily like 20 different like <laughs> types, also in air quotes of goth. And um, also interesting to note, goth has been around since the 80s, right? But prior to that, there actually were styles very similar to goth. Mm. There was one style that came out of the 1920s called Vamp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was basically just a recreation of the silent film movie makeup, because I think most of us have seen a silent film. Like, it's very heavy in the makeup. There's that very coal black, thick eyeliner and bright, red lips that don't turn up red in the actual films, but they would have been red in real life. When you think about it, the 20s is also when we got our first horror movies, uh, Nosferatu and the first Dracula, and also uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, which was the first horror movie to ever have a twist ending, and it also came out, I believe, in the year 1920. So you had like this sort of proto-goth that was vamp, But Vamp didn't really have anything going for it except for being tied to the silent film movement. And the silent film movement, like German Expressionism, had a lot going on with it. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to study. But it also didn't really like associate itself with fashion. It was just fashion inspired by that. But then Goths picked it up. And quite frankly, if you look at Vamp makeup and you look at Susie Sue, it's the same picture. Like, I I don't see, I personally don't see how that's different. I think goth was just a continuation of that vamp style, of those darker styles, only they put a meaning behind it. And that's why goth is still around and vamp isn't. I discovered vamp from an actual fashion history class that I took when I was in college, because we actually did talk about alternative fashion for a good week there. And we just talked about different alternative fashions and how it is that they come to be and why it is that they come to be. And um, yes, we talked about Lolita a little bit in that class. We also talked about goth in that class quite a bit. And um, like we didn't get too in deep with them, but it was still fascinating to me. Like this is like a cultural thing. It's not just people wearing weird clothes to be weird. It's like part of our culture. That's interesting. I, I definitely agree that like there's there's a reason why these are alternative and there's a reason why there's a subculture to them. It's all because other stuff is happening around the same time. I find it interesting that a lot of the most hardcore goths come out of Germany. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many other people have noticed that, but like in that area of the world, there's a lot of that industrial goth. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like there were things 
that happened in history <laughs> in a lot of these parts of the world. Certain and things. And it is like where you have the most like inequality and strife is where you tend to have the most weirdos because they're the ones that are pushing back against that and saying, I'm not okay with the way that my country is right now. So I'm going to do something that shows you how I feel about that. We love activism and we love being activists visibly. Yes. Visible yeah. activism is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So one of our patrons, Jenna S., uh, says the term, quote, survival bias used by fashion historians is used to show how not all of the clothes worn in the past have survived. And so people in the present may not have an accurate representation of how our ancestors were clothing. Do you think fashion historians may experience the same conundrum when it comes to J fashion specifically? And how do you think impermanent social media like Snapchat, Instagram stories, Twitter reels may affect this impermanence or other documentation? I think um, fashion historians will definitely have their work cut out for them <laughs> when looking back at the past couple decades. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely going to have a huge impact on the way that we look at our history in the past. Because, like, social media has done so much good for alternative fashion, but it's also, I don't want to say that it's all bad, but there are definitely bad aspects to it. For instance, I think one of the one of the main things is that obviously we're going to have a much more polished and put together view of how fashion was. And that's true always, all the time. Like we always have a much more polished view of how people dressed than how they actually dressed. You could go out onto the street and ask a random person what a peasant would have worn in the 1600s and they couldn't tell you. We know what royals wore because we have all these beautiful paintings of them and all their beautiful dresses, but that's not what poor people were wearing. And I think that this is going to especially show in like our Instagram feed versus our Instagram stories. Mm, you right. post a picture permanently on Instagram when it's your best outfit. But then in our stories is when we allow ourselves to be messy, but that's gonna be gone in 24 hours. Yeah, unless they save it as like a highlight. Yeah, but you personally, like you have to make that decision right. to save it like that. At least with like the street snaps, it's like they're catching you off guard and you're just like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really like certain street snaps because it is just, you know, going out and randomly photographing people in how they actually were in their day-to-day -day life. Um, unfortunately now, I feel like a lot of street snaps aren't like that anymore Yeah, because like a lot of people will announce where they're going to be now. And now that Harajuku is such a tourist destination, a lot of people will wear their best outfit mm -hmm. to Harajuku because they're like, oh, I might get photographed by somebody. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sometimes like not really has to do with Japan specifically, but when I go down to where the South Loop where Columbia College is, but then like a bunch of other colleges are and I see the people walking around and I'm just like, I wish there was a street snapper here because I'm like seeing people's cute alternative outfits that don't specifically fit into like, oh, this is this style, but it's still like worth noting. 
And I'm like, this would be a good area for that if someone wanted to street stamp that. Don't give area. me ideas, Kamila. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a pandemic. Like someone- I mean, I can't afford it right now. <laughs> someone needs to do that because I, I definitely think that's where our <laughs> artistic realm is a little bit. I mean, social media definitely helped and has affected trends in so many positive ways. Like there is more exposure to alternative fashions now because you don't have to wait until some photographer on the street wants to photograph you. You can just be like, oh, this is what I wore today and post that. And so we are seeing what appears to be this big boom in alternative fashion. But in reality, like it's not that big of a boom. Like, yeah, it's more popular now than it used to be in the past because more people know about it. Yeah, it's more visible. But at the same time, like, people have always been dressing weird throughout all of history. Like there's always been alternative fashion. It's not a new phenomenon. We just weren't recording it until now. I also like that we see more non-celebrities and more non-models because we do see so many more body types available on the internet now. Most fashion, when we think of it in the past, it's all on like skinny white models always. Uh, And all of our celebrities, for the most part, have been skinny white models, which, you know, I'm I'm a thin white person. So, like, I'm not saying it's bad to be a thin white person, but I do appreciate it when I see people that don't look like me in in like pictures. But then we also run into like the problem of a lot of algorithms will specifically are like specifically coded to favor people with fairer skin. It, It sees it as being a more even skin tone, but that's. I mean, that's just because of how it was programmed, unfortunately. They they will purposefully only put, like, the pretty people higher up. TikTok is especially guilty of this. They were, like, proven guilty of this not that long ago. So you have these, like, low-key kind of racist algorithms that are kind of doing the gatekeeping for us. And so now, like, the pictures that are popular, the pictures that are going to be saved for future generations are still primarily this one body type, which is unfortunate. Thinking about how algorithms affect exposure now, like it's something that I think about fairly often, like whenever someone brings it up or whenever someone calls out the Twitter algorithm for photos, I'm like, oh yeah, there it is again. But I didn't ever think about it in terms of history and how it does contribute to survival bias. It went over my head. I mean, I I mostly I mostly just think about it because like I've I've heard other people in the community, specifically people of color in the community bring this up before. So I I think it's something valuable to keep in the back of your head like, "Oh, I'm not seeing the full range of this because this algorithm has picked these images for me." And I think a lot of that does mean that we are going to lose some of the more I I don't want to say more interesting looks, but like we are losing some of the more interesting looks because there are so many people of color that aren't being pushed by the algorithm that have maybe been inspired by their own cultural spin. Yeah, Yeah. that put their own cultural spin on things that are inspired by maybe their own like ethnic clothing that they've incorporated into another fashion style. And I think that that's always like so fascinating seeing how other people react to different alternative fashions within the context of their own culture. And I think that we're going to unfortunately lose a lot of that in the future because of how social media algorithms are programmed. Yeah, unless people who actively make 
blogs or already have these sorts of followings and they post resources or something like that, document those things. Yeah, like definitely need to document all of that. I now have the internet archive on a, on another tab because I am now going to just save all the pictures I can and be like, okay, can I can I save this? Can I yeah. can I post it on here? Can I I need to do the work <laughs> before it's gone. Right. right. And now I want to know what alt fashion was like in ancient Rome and ancient Greece and Persia. <laughs> I want to know those. Right? Like it must have been so fascinating back then. I I, I recognize that. Ancient cultures were, I would say, restricted by other social factors, technological um, resources that they had. But I, there, there's bound to be some crazy kids in Greece who are like, I'm going to put berries in my hair today. <laughs> I mean, uh, not to get gross, but I mean, in Roman, in, in Greek times, they would use the ammonia from urine to dye hair. Yeah. So like... You know, we were already dyeing our hair back then, and we were doing these, like, weird things, like putting literal urine in our hair to do those oh, things. Like, you have to think that there were definitely people who were using berries and stuff to dye their hair back then. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we we know that Marie Antoinette dyed her hair pink at one point. Mm -hmm. Like, oh. that that is an actual thing that she did. But so many people are like, oh, they had hair dye back then? No, they didn't have hair dye back then. They didn't have fabric dye back then either, for the most part, but they still found a way. And just to ground it a little more, I love to see the ancient Roman and Grecian graffiti that historians have found, and it's just like, Claudius was here. Oh my god. People haven't changed. People have not changed at all, and that is what that proves. But I love them, because we, we have this thought that like people back then were just more serious because I mean when we study them we're studying them from a very academic perspective so we we think of their like classical poems and their Greek plays and all of that and honestly my favorite Greek play is the Lysistrata and anybody who has read it before knows that it is quite dirty. It is, <laughs> it is not like, it's not a big brain production. And even like the way we see Shakespeare, Shakespeare is, Shakespeare is full of penis jokes. We just don't get them because the culture is different. But like the Lysistrata literally was about the women of Greece and the women of Sparta got together and decided to have a sex strike to end the Peloponnesian yes. War. Yes. Like the costuming is super interesting because there were literally like, there are recreations of it where they have the quote-unquote erections that the guys are suffering from because their <laughs> terrible wives just won't do it for them. <laughs> and uh, some of them are like 30 feet long. Oh my god. Like, they went over the top. It's basically like Seth Rogen, but like <laughs> in Greek times. My mom did see a production of it and they used pool noodles for yeah. them. And that was wonderful. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Like, people aren't any different now than they were back then. <laughs> <laughs> Even in, in untouched cultures around the world, there's so many different fashionable things that's not related to, we need this, need this to practically live right. that, are, that are done. So I think definitely there's been alternative fashion for centuries. I just want to know. Yeah, we just want to know what it looks like. Just like, and, and what it means in these different periods of time, what they meant to them. Yeah, interesting, interesting questions. Yeah, social media is going to help 
and can hinder in some ways us documenting these things accurately. But just talking about that and hopefully maybe other bloggers or people who are interested in doing something like that are listening because then it's like, oh, we need to have some more fashion books documenting what's going on in the West as like a Western reaction to Harajuku fashion. Because I don't know if we have as many official documentations of that as we do documentation of what happened in Japan already. Well, we have 41 episodes right here on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I hope they dust these off when they're ready to look into it. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to wipe my uh, my hard drives of all of our episodes and just let them be lost to the wind. I wouldn't be surprised oh, if other people right now are like downloading these and saving them just just for future. That'd be so cool to know. Is someone doing that? I would be touched, honestly. It's <laughs> like a time capsule. <laughs> I bet I'd listen to this, though, just as a looking back into my 20s being like, oh, wow. <laughs> This is how I sounded and what I was talking about, (laughs) my friends. (laughs) How do you think alternative fashion communities can better preserve their fashion in the present to be sure that they are able to be accurately represented in the future? Like, do you think there's any certain type of media or mediums we should be using? I don't know about specific media, just because... I don't know, books go out of print, websites end up ending because the person who's hosting them doesn't want to pay for it anymore. Like, There's downsides to every single form of media. I think it's just important to have a good range. Like, Create good resources now in all mediums and nuanced resources that have like nuanced portrayals of the fashion. The good, the bad, all of it. That way other people can actually understand where it was coming from and what it meant to us and like why we did the things that we did. And I feel like like a lot of the original, like some of the older alternative fashions that I think of would be like mod fashion in the 60s or greaser fashion in the 50s. And unfortunately, like we don't really have super accurate understandings of why it is that like, for instance, greasers, why did greasers decide to start putting gel in their hair and slicking it back. Like, we don't really know for certain on that front. Right, like why that specific tool? Yeah, like we we know how other people interacted with it and we know how it was viewed by the general public, mm-hmm. but there isn't really like a book like this is why we were greasers, at least not to my knowledge. This is why we were greasers. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it, maybe there is a book out there that's like, this is why we were greasers, and I just haven't read it yet. But You've like, never heard of the 1978 completely accurate 50s documentary Grease? I think that explained everything <laughs> about, oh, yes. about greaser culture there. Yes, everything you need to know about greasers is in that one musical. <laughs> I'm amazed you haven't heard of it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of our alternative fashions from that far back, like pre-punk, pre-goth, we just don't know as much about them because people weren't writing about them. And I think just just making those resources, preserving what you think is worth preserving. Like, if you do see a really cool blog or a really cool website talking about J fashion, 
archive it. Go to the Internet Archive and archive it. Well, I just like decided to just be like, oh, I'm going to do a little bit of a random search because I feel like the term greasers had something to do with Mexicans. And I was just like, what is that connection there? I know the zoot suit was connected to Mexican culture. Yeah, I know the zoot suit thing. But okay, greaser was a derogatory term for a Mexican in what is now the U.S. Southwest in the 19th century. The slur likely derived from what was considered one of the lowliest occupations typically held by Mexicans, the greasing of axles and wagons. They also greased animal hides that were taken to California where Mexicans loaded them onto clipper ships. It is a common usage among among U.S. troops in the Mexican-American War. I want, I just wonder, I want to know how that evolved into white guys and motorcycles greasing their hair back. Yeah, the name naming of that style and then, and then related articles, greaser subculture. So greasers are a youth subculture that emerged in the 1950s slash 60s from predominantly working class and lower class teenagers and young adults in the United States, particularly Italian Americans and Hispanic Americans. That's how it got pulled into there because it's just like the profession. Hmm. It must have been like a reclamation. Yeah. I don't know if they named themselves this. I don't think they did. And I think that happens a lot in a lot of different alternative subcultures. Like, I don't think punks really named themselves punk. That came from, like, outside of the subculture. And the same with Lolita. I'm pretty sure Lolitas did not name themselves that. I think that came from, like, other people. And then eventually they just got so desensitized with they're like, fine, we're Lolitas, whatever. Just call us whatever you want. <laughs> I think someone that was at least tied to the culture coined that term. It was in that uh, that book. Oh, um, are oh, you talking about Novella Takamoto? Um, Novella Takamoto. Hold on, I don't know um, how to pronounce his name that well. So pretty, very rotten. Yes, so pretty, very rotten, and they like got to interview him. Unfortunately, in that book, Novella Takamoto actually says that he did not come up with the term himself oh did he popularize it or what was he i think he did popularize it i think it was the kamikaze girls movie that popularized it as like a regularly used term at least from the research that i've done i i want to do a lot more research on that particular topic specifically but like novella takamoto himself said in an interview in so pretty very rotten that he did not come up with the term himself that other people had started talking about it before him. Other people had started calling it that before him. And um, as far as he's concerned, the origin of the name, the true origin of the name has probably mm. been lost to time because he said himself in that interview that he does not consider himself to be a Lolita scholar. And that everybody, <laughs> since everybody does view him that way, he's like, that's how I know that it's doomed, that we're never going to figure this out for real. Oh, yeah. If he's determined to be like the, you're the 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 godfather of this thing. And he's just like, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm just some dude that's been here a while. I don't know. Just like you attached yourself to the wrong person. And now the real person who did this is lost to time. Who knows? Honestly, I think the only way we're going to find a lot of the alternative fashion resources is by putting on uh, overalls and trudging through the landfills and trying to find little bits and pieces of indiscernible pamphlets and zines 
that other people yeah. have made. Yeah. And like not even magazines, like zines. zines. Yeah, zines. <laughs> like, <laughs> like independent little pamphlets that people were handing out in actually Japan. Right. I, I was talking about like archiving stuff and keeping those archives accessible. A lot of important information from like say the beginning of Lolita is in those old mooks. And I remember, like, I got really interested in Lolita fashion primarily because there were people back in the day that were archiving those, that were scanning them, doing what little translation they could, or maybe not even trying to translate them, just scanning them and putting them up on the internet. Unfortunately, a lot of those sites don't exist anymore, though. But I think we do need to do a lot more of that, just scanning those important pieces of our history and making them accessible. Unfortunately, I don't know um, where copyright would play into that very well, but like when it comes to a lot of that older stuff, like 90s mooks that talk about early proto-Lolita fashion, like we should be trying to save that as much as possible and making it more accessible because like one mook is like $35 oftentimes, and that's not very accessible for everybody. Like, a lot of that print media just isn't accessible because there's only so many of them out in the world. A lot of them are very damaged and unreadable now. So, like, copies that are good should be, like, scanned and made into digital media that can be more easily shared. And maybe that comes down to the actual magazine companies doing that. A lot of magazine companies are going digital right now, but, like, having options to not have that behind an excessive paywall really helps even if like maybe having it offered in like a library or something where it's just like well not everybody can have it but like someone can have access to it at some point for free like so many important documents are in archives right now Mm -hmm. but they're like not not what we're interested in i guess Mm -hmm. but like right something like the new york library and all of the important works that are just archived there that aren't even down on the shelves like you have to ask somebody specifically for them and then you only get like a few hours with them but like those resources have been so invaluable to so many people researching so many different topics and i feel like alternative fashion needs to be included in more stuff like that or else we are going to lose this huge part of our culture The last thing I was going to say is just um, don't spread misinformation. If you see varying stories and you think, okay, well, I'm not sure, like, don't be afraid to do that research and be like, oh, well, maybe we don't actually know this. Like, I feel like a lot of people in alternative fashion feel this pressure to be this monolith of information. And most of us just aren't. Like, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. All I know is what I've researched. And that is not as much as I would like it to be. And I feel like most people are in the same boat. Like, we don't actually know as much as we think we do. And I think it's okay to kind of dial back and say, like, oh, well, I don't know that, but I'm interested in learning about it. But instead, I see a lot of people just spreading the half-truth that they heard on some forum, like, 10 years ago and just still going with it. And it's like, well, maybe that was just a rumor. Maybe that wasn't accurate. Like, I I just see so many people spreading that unverified information and it has led to these like insane telephone games, like, oh, Cult Party K and Dolly K are the same style, just different versions. Or even the origin of uh, Bittersweet Lolita, like what that is. When I I read, I was just like, 
Oh, so Bittersweet Lolita doesn't mean that it's like pastel on a like black background or something. <laughs> like It's like totally different. It's still very much dark and not very much sweet Lolita at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's like you took sweet Lolita but made it goth. Right. Right. <laughs> My biggest fear for archiving is when the eventual replacement for the internet comes in and everyone has to transfer right. everything over to something new. That That's going to be one hell of a day. Yeah. Well, it's like when we switched from VHS to DVDs, like all the movies that must have gotten lost in that process, or when we made the switch from reels to VHS, like how much media must have been lost in that switch. And now like everything... Like, if it's on Netflix, it might as well not exist. Mm -hmm. That does bring us to uh, the last of our questions. Catherine, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and chatting with us about this. We really do appreciate it, especially towards the end of the year, beginning of the year time. And lastly, where can our listeners find your content? Please give us all the links, all the plugs. Let loose. I'm not really active anywhere outside of YouTube officially. I, I have Instagram, but I don't really use it very often. <laughs> and I'd, I'd rather not send people to my Twitter. That's just where I go to complain. So um, <laughs> yeah, just, just the main YouTube channel, The Stitches. Stitches as in stitching and duchess combined. Um, so it's the, the two S's at the end. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And with that, this has been OK Podcast. My name is Hayden. My name's Kamila. And this is The Stitches. We will see you all next time. Bye-bye.